we come now to God's Word, Matthew chapter 7. So if you want to turn there, that would be great. Matthew chapter 7 from verse 1 to verse 5. Jenna's going to read for us in just a moment. Matthew 7 verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly the speck to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Jen is representing the teen ministry. Um, I don't know if you've noticed when we ask the teens to leave how many leave, how long it takes uh, for them to file out. That's, that's a gift from God. We want to praise God that we have young people in our church. And while we are doing this, they are hearing the gospel over in the multipurpose and in other parts of the building. So please be praying for our teenagers. Um, so important. What a wonderful gift if they can receive Christ at this age. Um, as they're figuring out who they are, if they can know who they are in him, that is a precious thing. So please, can I implore you week by week, build it into your prayer life. Let's be praying for our kids and for our teens. Uh, Won't you join me now as we come to this passage in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do praise you for all your goodness to us. We've been thinking about our finances. We thank you for your generous provision to us as a church family. Uh, We we know that this very day is a gift from you. We can rejoice and be glad in it because it's your day. You've given it to us. We enjoy the cool of the morning. We enjoy the rains when they come. We enjoy life and health and friendship. Father, we praise you for every good gift from your hand. Supremely, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And all these other gifts, Lord, they, they point us to the source of all joy. Uh, They point us to a joy that is impervious to life's circumstances. And uh, we pray that we would be reminded of him and he would be exalted here this morning. And especially for those who are going through difficult times. uh, Lord, will will you meet with all of us? Will you speak to us? Will you remind us in this extraordinary sermon of yours who we are and what you've called us to? how you've called us to live the good life, the abundant life, the full life, and that that life is a gift from you. So please don't let us leave here as we are. We pray that by your Spirit, as your Spirit wields his sword in our hearts, that we would leave here changed people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a well-known passage, isn't it? Do not judge. It's one that resonates with the spirit of our age. Those are words we live by. Do not judge and don't let anyone judge you. Or as our young people say, you do you. And if anyone is going to judge you, well, haters are going to hate. Ignore them. Disregard them. A hater is anyone who criticizes you. Anyone who objects to anything you do is a hater. And haters shouldn't hate. They mustn't hate. They mustn't criticize. In fact, in our day and age, haters are hated. Haters are public enemy number one. In the culture of do not judge, hatred is criticism, 
Love is affirmation, and passing judgment is the unforgivable sin. I'm going to say that again because I think it captures the essence of our passage, or at least the essence of our culture and how this passage speaks into that culture. Hatred is criticism. Love is affirmation. And passing judgment is the unforgivable sin. That's where we find ourselves as a society. Of course, when you say passing judgment is a sin, you yourself are passing judgment, we'll leave that massive internal contradiction for later, for another time. Do not judge. This is undoubtedly the most popular verse in the Bible amongst those who don't really read the Bible. It's the most popular verse in our culture. I wonder if it, wouldn't, if it would be so popular if people knew what Jesus actually meant when he said, do not judge. Let's try and find out. His sermon, this whole Sermon on the Mount, if you remember, if you've been with us over the past three years, we've been grappling with what Jesus is saying in this extraordinary sermon. It is from start to finish a call to a counterculture. It's a call to a radically different life. It's a call to swim upstream. The culture is upside down, Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is life turned the right way up. Jesus says to his disciples, don't be like the culture. Be who you are. Be citizens of the kingdom so that you can win the culture. So that you can be a blessing to the culture. We are not just different from the culture. We are different for the culture. If that's the core in the Sermon on the Mount, then we can say with some confidence, even up front, do not judge does not mean what it means in our culture. It doesn't mean the same thing. Because as we've been saying, in our culture, do not judge means don't ever distinguish between good and evil in another person's life. Don't ever distinguish between truth and lie in another person's life. Abide by the rules of the affirmation contract. The contract where I endlessly affirm you as long as you agree to do the same for me and we both call that love. That's what do not judge means in our society. How do we know Jesus isn't saying that? Because on a superficial reading, it sounds like he is, doesn't it? How do we know he isn't saying that? How do we know he doesn't mean what our culture means when it says do not judge? There are a whole number of reasons. I'm only going to give you a sample just for the sake of time. But here are a few reasons we know Jesus doesn't mean what our culture means when he says do not judge. Firstly, his biggest fight in his whole ministry was with hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is putting a face on. Hypocrisy is one thing on the inside, another thing on the outside. Hypocrisy thinks one thing and then says the opposite. But that's exactly what you are doing if you think this person is doing something wrong, but you make out as if it's right, it's good, it's fine, you do you. That's hypocrisy. And Jesus opposed hypocrisy more than he opposed anything else. It's just not possible. It would go against the whole grain of his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. If when he says do not judge, he's giving people a free license for hypocrisy. 
It's not possible if you think something is wrong. But Jesus is saying, just keep quiet, look the other way, pretend it's right. A little bit of hypocrisy is actually what's needed to keep the peace. There's just no way he's saying that. Second reason we know Jesus does not mean what our culture means when he says do not judge is that it would be a denial of who we are. We are made in the image of God. God says certain things are right, other things are wrong. In his, as people made in his image, we are called to discern which is which and to live accordingly. In his image, we are called to discern wrongdoing in our own lives and in the lives of others, of those in the family. That takes judgment. Third reason, Jesus doesn't mean what our culture means, the immediate context. Just look at verse 6. If you've got your Bible open, it'll be helpful. Generate from verse 1 to 5. Look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they be trampled underfoot and turn and attack you. Verse 15, if you jump down, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. How do you know who is a dog, a pig, or a wolf if you can't make a judgment? Fourth reason. We know Jesus isn't saying what our culture is saying. In the rest of the New Testament, we are constantly, constantly called on to make judgments. We are called on to be on our guard against false teachers. We are called on to look for certain characteristics in our leadership. We called on to discipline those who are unrepentant and willful in their sin. That brings us to the fifth reason. He isn't saying what our culture is saying, and that's church history. Those who led the Reformation, we are Protestant Christians. They are forefathers. Those who led the Reformation decided on reading the Scriptures, on going back to the Scriptures. They decided that there are three marks to a true church. If you want to know what a true church is, it must bear at least these three marks. Number one, the Word, the Gospel. Number two, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Number three, the third mark of a true church, church discipline. Church discipline, there There's no church discipline without passing judgment. So by the standards of the Reformation, that means if you don't ever pass judgment, you're not a true church. Final reason Jesus doesn't mean what our culture means when he says do not judge is our passage itself. In this passage that we just read this morning, Jesus is actually calling for judgment. We're going to come back to that one. But hopefully you can see the evidence is overwhelming. I've only given you a slice of it. The evidence is overwhelming. When Jesus says, do not judge, he does not mean you do you or haters are going to hate. He doesn't mean that. He does not mean the affirmation contract. He means something else entirely. So what does he mean? He explains himself by introducing us to three characters. The judge, the hypocrite, and the brother, those three, the judge, the hypocrite, and the brother, and hopefully those three are going to help us understand exactly what he's saying when he says to us, here this morning, do not judge. So firstly, the judge, chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you not be judged, 
For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Those two verses sum up the traditional teaching of the Jewish rabbis in Jesus' day. But as usual, as he, as he does over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes that traditional teaching and he drives it so much deeper and he runs with it so much further than the rabbis ever could have imagined. The rabbis believed in two measures, two measures by which God measures man. The measure of his justice and the measure of his mercy. Jesus is saying that if you use the measure of God's justice and only God's justice to judge another person, that same measure is going to be applied to you. And the one to apply it will be God himself. Verse 2 has what we call a divine passive. You will be judged. By who? By God himself. If you sit on the judge's bench meeting out God's justice to others, that same justice is going to be pointed in your direction. By God himself, by the judge himself. If God's justice is the measure you use on others, it will be measured to you, says Jesus. So what he's talking about when he says do not judge is a spirit of condemnation. Now I just have to qualify what I mean by a spirit of condemnation. Someone came up to me at the 8 o'clock service and said, you know, I'm from a Pentecostal background. When you say a spirit of condemnation, do you mean like a, a personal spirit who comes and possesses you? I don't mean that. I simply mean a, a general disposition in your life, a posture towards others. It's not non-spiritual. Of course, we exist in spiritual warfare all the time. But I'm not saying when I say a spirit of condemnation that a demon, you are now possessed by a spirit. Are you with me? So I just want to clarify that. I don't want that confusion to reign. So he's talking about the spirit of condemnation when he says do not judge. It's the spirit which, the posture, which assumes the position of righteous judge over miserable sinner. That's how we approach other people. Righteous judge over miserable sinner. Instead of confronting sin with a view to helping a fellow sinner, it hands out verdicts and sentences in cold blood and it actually enjoys doing so. It's the spirit which goes beyond the criticism of an equal to the condemnation of a superior. It brings down the judgment of God rather than bringing across the judgment of a fellow human being. Instead of humility and solidarity with the guilty person, there's only pride and superiority. John Stott says it like this, This is a compound sin consisting of several unpleasant ingredients. It does not mean to assess people critically, but to judge them harshly. This person is a fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. He puts the worst possible construction on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous towards their mistakes. That's the spirit of condemnation. That's the judge. Sharp end of the question. Is that you? 
Is that me? Let's ask the hard questions. Of course, the hard questions are the hard questions, but we can't avoid them. We can't avoid them. When you judge, when you judge others as we are called to in all of life, in different contexts, when you judge others, is there a hint of sadness because you actually love the person you're judging? Or at least you feel for them, you, you feel their humanity, there's some empathy there, and you genuinely want the best for them, even in this moment of judgment. Or when you judge, do you really just want to see them punished? You're looking forward to them getting what they deserve. What about the act of judgment itself? Does it pain you to have to see and point out another person's sin? Is it a, is it a kind of necessary evil that gives you no pleasure? Does it fill you with some fear? Because that could just as easily be you there but for the grace of God go I or does it give you a bit of a thrill to judge others and let's be honest with ourselves there's no point in being anything else because God already knows he already knows do do you relish judgment just a little bit do you feel just a tinge of pleasure Or maybe a a surge of moral power. Do you feel your self-esteem lifting ever so slightly as you do it? Do you feel feel a kind of self-assurance, a strange confidence when you see others fail? Does it lift you just a little bit to look on another person's failure? What about the frequency of judgment? Do you hate the times when you're called on to make these judgments? Or does it come naturally? Do you find seeing the faults of others is is a kind of second nature to you and the criticism just rolls off your tongue? Of course, if you find yourself in the second of those two categories, you can be sure there is a spirit of judgment living in you. It's the kind of judgment Jesus is warning against. The role you are playing is reserved for God alone in his perfect love, in his perfect insight into the depths of our souls. It's reserved for him. You have no place on his seat, is what Jesus is saying. That's the judge. The real problem with the judge is that he's also the hypocrite. Look at verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Not only is the judge playing God over other sinners, but he's a fraud. He himself he himself is guilty of the very same things. Jesus paints this picture of hypocrisy for us. It's straight out of the carpenter's workshop, which really shouldn't surprise us. It is ludicrous, it's absurd, and it's meant to be. Because hypocrisy is ludicrous, and it's absurd. 
Here you have the builder posing as an optometrist. He says to his fellow builder, here, let me take the splinter out of your eye. Now, if you've ever taken an eyelash out of somebody else's eye, you will know this is a delicate process. It takes a soft touch. It requires good eyes and steady hands. But here's the builder, banging about with a plank in his own eye. Every time he turns around, he's whacking you on the back of the head with this log protruding out of his eye. He can't even see well enough to find his patient, let alone to take something out of his eye. He's completely blind, but he wants to take on the role of microscopic inspector in the lives of others. He's completely blind, but he wants to play eye surgeon for someone else. That's hypocrisy, and it's absurd. It would be funny if it wasn't so personal. Hypocrisy would be funny if it didn't apply to me. But sadly, it does. It applies to me, and it applies to you. We are hypocrites. How do we know? Let me use a a trivial, overused, cliched example that I've used many times. I use it because it's so simple and it's so obvious that we can't actually deny it. Of course, I'm talking about traffic. How often have you lost your mind, lost your godliness, lost what is left of your hooter because someone went out of turn at the load-shedding intersection? And then at the very next intersection, you do exactly the same thing. Happens to me three times a week. (laughs) Of course, when others do it, they are inconsiderate. And you can fill in your own expletive, right? But when I do it, listen, man, I'm in a rush. Just relax. I've got to get the kids to school. Can you calm down? Now, traffic is one thing, and we can giggle. But that same seed of hypocrisy grows up everywhere in our lives. Everywhere. She's such a liar. She can't help herself. You know what she said. And then as you're relaying the story, it's full of half-truths and exaggerations to make your case. The Guptas crippled this country. They must rot in jail. But when the Metro Police Officer pulls me over, I'm the first one to talk about cool drink. You know those gays and lesbians? It's going to catch up with them. But when my own son sleeps with his girlfriend, well, you know, young people, they make mistakes. Those are pretty crude examples. Our hypocrisy is so much more subtle than that. And it's everywhere in our lives. Judgment for someone else. No excuses, cold hard justice. But for me, a long list of reasons why I didn't really have a choice. Why it's not as bad as it looks. Why you would have done the same thing if you were in my shoes. How do you locate the hypocrisy in your life? Well, again, we need to ask those hard questions. How quick are you to criticize others? Do you tend to do it behind their backs? 
Because that's the perfect cover for hypocrisy, isn't it? When somebody criticizes you, is your first emotion anger? Your first instinct to defend and to justify? When someone criticizes, is your first reaction defensive or do you prefer to go on the attack and criticize them in return? Oh, you're a big one to talk. If the answer is yes, or maybe even if the answer is no, but with a lot of emotion, no with an exclamation mark, those are signs of hypocrisy. That's the hypocrite. That's you and me, if we're honest with ourselves. Jesus gives us the alternative. Instead of being the judge or the hypocrite, he calls us to be the brother the brother or the sister. Look at verse 5 again. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now before we go on, we want to notice the goal of all of this. Notice where our passage ends up. Notice what a brother does. A brother takes the speck out of his brother's eye. I said we would come back to this, and and here we are. When Jesus says, do not judge, he does not mean do not under any circumstances ever pass a judgment on another human being. He's not saying that. The evidence is right here in our passage. Jesus expects us to take the speck out of our brother's eye. He expects us to do it, because that's the loving thing to do. Would you leave a splinter in somebody else's eye? Would you leave sin to fester unchecked in somebody else's life? Jesus wants us to do criticism, but he wants us to do it well. He wants us to offer healthy criticism, the kind that builds another person up rather than breaking them down. And so he rejects a spirit of condemnation and hypocrisy. He says, don't be the judge. Don't be the hypocrite. Be the brother. Be the sister. The brother takes the speck out. That's the first thing, but there's more. The brother can't take the speck out before he's taken the log out. That much is clear. If we want to be brothers and sisters and bring the kind of loving criticism that actually builds somebody else up, if we want to help each other in this fight against sin, which is what we are called to do, the family wages war against sin as a family, not as isolated individuals. If we want all of that, then the only way to do it is to deal with sin in our own lives first. Now, how does that help? How, how does dealing with our own sin first help us to help others, to help each other? It helps because if you grapple with the extent of your own sin and the depth of your own sin, it will humble you. It will. Remember the dimensions of your sin. What does Jesus say? He says your sin is a plank. And he's the one who says so. So if you've got problems with the dimension, with his diagnosis, take it up with him. He's the one saying the sin in your life is a plank. And those dimensions actually make sense. Because think about this, when we approach somebody else with their sin, what are we seeing? We're seeing something on the surface. 
We're seeing something superficial. We're seeing the speck in their eye. But of course, that's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? That speck, relative to all the sin in my life, most of which is unseen, is merely a speck. That's all it is. So whatever specific sin you are criticizing in this person is a splinter in comparison with all the sin in your life, which God sees. He sees the whole thing. Grappling with that reality in our own lives humbles us. It's the only way to approach this sinner as a brother or a sister, as a fellow sinner in humility, in solidarity, because you know your own sin. So how can you come with pride? If you deal with your plank first, there is no way you can approach as the judge. When you face up to the plank, all pride is gone. The judge has been knocked off his perch. He's been bumped off his high horse. The hypocrite has been completely exposed. The hypocrite is naked when you've grappled with your own sin. You come only as a brother, as a sister, as a fellow sinner. And now, now that you are a brother, you can see clearly enough to help. You are not trying to look from above. To bring judgment. You are looking eyeball to eyeball to bring relief from sin, which is the goal. That's the judgment Jesus is calling us to. And the only way to get there is to take the plank out of our own eyes. It's the only way. Leaves us with one last obvious question. How do I get this plank out of my eye? You have an older brother. You have to go to him and ask him to take the plank out. He's the only one who sees clearly enough to be able to do it. The only one. And he'll take the whole plank out. He'll put it on his shoulders. And he'll carry it up the hill. And he'll deal with it there. And that's the last you'll know of it. It's the last you'll see of it. What does he do with it up the hill? He goes up there to take the measure of God's justice so that you and I can be measured by God's mercy. That's what's happening. Jesus says, don't judge the splinter as if you don't have a plank in your own eye. Come to me. Let me take the plank out so that you can go to your brother as a brother. Not as a judge or a hypocrite, as a brother and in love and help him with the splinter.